Welcome to Rebecca Wendy podcast and it contains strong language and adult themes. Hello and welcome to Rebecca Wendy, A Crazy Life. Now I know this is late and I'm really sorry guys, this has uh, come out a little later than what I wanted it to. I actually recorded another one right on the day that I was meant to release it and I didn't release it because it becomes such a heavy subject about poverty um and it 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 just I thought maybe I'll release it anyway and and upload it and I even got to the point of uploading it and I just I just didn't and I couldn't I couldn't bring myself I just felt like it was bringing everybody down um and I know that there are people out there that are that are you know grew grew up and had relationships like me where they've been almost purposely kept in this state of of poverty um and I was explaining how these things went and I just I didn't and then I um I found some other things that talked about uh how to make life funny and, and talking about the funny stuff even the really bad stuff of life um and I'm glad I waited and I'm sorry that that it means that you had to wait um, but I am glad I waited because I now feel so different than I did on that day and I feel like I can actually talk and not feel so heavy in that sphere of things happening um, so today we're going to talk a little bit about how we can make uh, our grief funny and I'm going, I'm going to shout out to a, a plug, a podcast, another one, which was um, called The Good Cry. It's talking about how the man lost his son and how that changed him as a comedian. What I find fascinating about that is because I lost my daughter, how that then changed me as a woman. Now, there's something that I, I until you until you've lost someone, and it can't, it doesn't matter whether you've lost your mum. Uh, grandparents kind of don't count because they're older. They're meant, they're kind of the, the people in your lives that are meant to die before you. But you're never meant to lose a child. And you're not really meant to lose a parent at a young age either because you, you hope that you're going to get older and your, your parents are going to get older. And when they're old, they will die because everybody dies. Well, when you lose a child, it changes the whole aspect and I, I wondered when I laughed when's the first time I laughed after I lost my daughter like and I found that the grief is so intense afterwards that when the laughter comes it's almost it almost as intense so I remember I we had my daughter's wake we didn't have a funeral we just had a wake we had her wake at oh I think it was 10 days later and with her wake I remember being there and I remember smiling and I remember thinking that nobody can tell you know I'm putting on I felt so guilty for doing it but I'm putting on such a, a good face that no one can tell until I got back photos from that day and oh my goodness I look distraught which is fair enough it's been 10 days 
And so I, I did little things and I smiled at the kids' balloons and things like that. But I honestly felt like I would never feel happy again. I would never feel like I could smile or laugh again. And the thing that, the one that I remember the most is three months later. And I watched a video that had a, a horse pooping rainbow ice creams, like a soft serve ice cream. And I remember laughing so hysterically, like unbelievable. It wasn't even funny, but it was so hysterical. I was crying. I was laughing so much that, you know, I fell onto the floor. I was laughing so much. There was just, it was so funny and it was so funny for so long. And it just seemed a ridiculous thing to laugh at. But that was, that was the thing that sort of broke the laughter, you know, the, the ability to laugh. It's also really funny when people say things that you don't expect them to say. So people with grief and death is not someone people want to talk about, especially if you lose someone like um, a child. You, you, they just people do not know how to respond and they really want to move on with the subject because it's so uncomfortable for them. And so they will compare because that's the way that they know to do it with whatever they have and so we got at our wake we got I know how you feel my dog died last week and I was so mad I was so mad because I thought well if unless you've grown that dog inside your belly for nine months unless you birthed that dog out your vagina and then breastfed it for the next 18 months you have no idea what you're talking about and and I was so mad but I realized later on that's all they knew that's all the they that's the that's the biggest grief that they've had and some people are really close to their dogs and that's the biggest grief that they had <clears throat> and so that's what their comparison was the comparison was the death of their dog um, I also got compared with the death of their cat um, and you know, I, I at the time it was so horrific and I went through something else too. I had, we had a close friend of ours and she had organized the wake and she did so many things for us. And then she said one thing that triggered me at the wrong time. And I wrote a book and I blasted her and I blasted her for probably the next two years maybe more I was so angry I was so angry I felt like at that time in that environment she chose the wrong time to say what she did and she I I still think today it was the wrong time I still think today that she potentially could have chosen but you know, to keep quiet or things like that. But I also know she was doing what she knew how to do and doing the best that she knew how to do. And I absolutely blasted her. And it was horrific. Now, I can't 
I can't get that friendship back to what it was, nor did I, do I, I want the friendship. I don't think it will ever be back to what it was, and I don't think it can ever be back to what it was, and I'm okay with that, because now it's different. What I don't know is how things change Oh, that's my dog. I reckon um, my, my kids are home from work. Um, I don't know exactly how I'm going to move around. So you're going to hear me move. I'm coming out of my closet <laughs> into the room. So it's a bigger room, so that's why it's echoes. Um, okay, hopefully I'm not going to be interrupted again. Yeah, so... I, 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 it was the worst time to make any kind of decisions and making a decision to write a book and mention my friend was the worst decision. Um, and I didn't get it edited. I just self-published it. It was the worst decision because my brain is not in functional mode. And I, I also had... I had heaps of anger and I had so much anger based on the circumstances. So my daughter died suddenly. Um, she fell off our boat and we become headline news around the world. And of course you get lots of comments from lots of people and that was hard enough. And it was having people send me newspaper clips and that was hard and I would say just don't send them to me I don't because I, I wouldn't read them and or I'd start and I'd go I can't do this that wasn't the hardest thing that was already anger I was already annoyed what made it more angry for me was the fact that when you're in grief you feel and I went through you know you guys have heard a lot especially in the first part of this podcast about my relationship and what it got to from here what so it was already learning not to feel or not to show emotion as much as possible so when my daughter died my husband decided that he needed sex two days afterwards on the second night which was unbelievably horrific to me because I was in so much pain and my thought was well why that shouldn't have even entered his mind it shouldn't have even been a thought because I was in agony and I learnt then you know, he told me that it was my responsibility to take away his pain I needed to do that um, and I realized I wasn't safe I just wasn't it not even in my grief was I safe. And what that created was anger. Huge, huge amounts of it. But I, it become, because I couldn't be angry where I needed to be angry, the anger went everywhere else. And so, and, and if you talk to anyone who has lost someone like that, they just, they're already on a knife's edge when it comes to anger. So after a while, you just don't take any shit. But I took a lot of shit at home. I just didn't take it anywhere else. And so little things become 
massive things, which is why it was a stupid idea. And you know what else I did? You know, trademark thing that, that, that should be a warning sign, never ever do. And I think everybody should do it. You know, they should not be allowed to take charge of their business during that time. Like there should be some kind of, you cannot take charge of your own business during that time. Now, I didn't have an official business, but I'd started a website and I'd started selling products that I'd made and I started doing all those things. Now, when I look at that in hindsight, I was getting so much traffic to different things. I could have helped the situation by just getting some money in and selling things. But that's not what I did. And I couldn't have gone on a sales brow, oh my goodness. But if I had left it alone, it could have potentially done it itself. But no. I decided with all the press that I didn't want to be talking to anyone and I want people not to know who I am or anything. I closed everything. I shut everything. I took down my blog, which was getting so many views. I took down my shop, which was being, had sales. I took down everything. I stopped everything. I, and I didn't just pause it. I shut it down. And that was the worst decision. That was the worst because I could have just let it do its thing. I could have just let it be what it was and then moved slowly from there. Once I got my mind clear enough that I could have um, thought about, you know, the next move or, you know, just even a just a little bit more clear it would have been better but I didn't I decided to step in when I was in the heat of grief and anger I think I did it within the first month and that was the worst thing to do it was I should not have been out of touch it for the first year at least um and just maybe almost like that time where where companies go into receivership they there should be a, like a griefership there should be someone that steps in and goes you cannot touch this you cannot you cannot do anything with it you are in a compromised situation you cannot do anything with it um you know you can add things to it but you can't take anything away and I I know that sounds like even to me that goes you know that's restricting what I can do but in that in that moment I am, I am, you know, you're not in the right state of mind. You're not in the right state of, of thought. All as you are is in this state of, of grief and anger and, and yeah, for me, betrayal. Um, you know, it, so many things are going on. There is no way, there is no way I have the, the mind to do the right thing at that point. And releasing the book, which was, I wanted to show people the first three months. So I wrote a book in the first three months and released it. And it was horrible. And then I tried to start the next six months and I couldn't finish it because things had changed. And when I went back to the book in the first, I think after two years and I reread it, I went, oh my goodness, I cannot believe I said this and I cannot believe I said that. But that's where I was. And... I was writing from just pain. That's that's all. I was just writing from pain. 
and that can sometimes be a great thing to do and I kind of wish in my own way that I'd set up a podcast just so I can talk I thought I had a grief counselor at the time and maybe that would have been again a wrong decision um because everything I seemed to say at the time went to media and I remember there was one there was one post that I did that I was angry I was angry at the situation I was angry at everything and then I was angry at her you know and I said in the post why did she have to leave why why everything if she just stayed everything would have been fine but it was an accident that was that was ruled as just as that it was ruled as an accident it just was an the worst day of my entire life and of course that the media the um what is it called daily mail got it and did a story on how mother blames dead daughter for being for in the situation that she's in because we'd become like we were living out of a a dignity house and things like that so we didn't have anything and I and people were sending me the clips and going how dare they say this and sent me the, the, the article of which I started to read it and I thought from the the headline I went no they they can't be serious and I started reading it and I kind of finished this and then it just become it went worldwide and of course then I just had message after message and a lot of them were wonderful and a lot of them were terrible and I I I, I wish I had I wish I had done something um you know I wish I'd done things differently but I didn't and I remember the day that I saw her so some things are so in ground I remember her but I wish I remember more of her she was three I wish I remember more of her it's been four years now and I remember the day that I went into the hospital and I remember when my friend Alex came and picked me up she said do you want anything to eat I hadn't eaten in hours and I didn't even know that I hadn't eaten I, I, I really I didn't know and she stopped and she said, do you want, you know, she stopped, do you want something to eat? And I, I, I don't know. And she ended up getting me, I think I ate banana bread. But I wasn't, I think, I, I'm overweight. So food is, is a motivator. And, uh, you know, if you can give me food, I will be motivated to do almost anything. And this was a time where I wasn't hungry. And I didn't even realise I wasn't hungry. I just wasn't eating. I could not, I could have not eaten for hours and I wouldn't have even noticed um, and I didn't even know, like, uh, when she said, are you hungry? It's like, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm not. Um, the, the, the thing is that, that I find amusing now is I thought I was fooling everybody. I thought that I could put on a smile and nobody would know that, that I could laugh and I could smile and, you know, and, and, you know, I, I, I would be going on. Like, I, I didn't know how I was supposed to hold my face. That's really interesting because I didn't know how I was supposed to hold my face. I thought that I, if I wasn't outwardly 
crying all the time, then I wasn't grieving enough. And then if I was crying too much, then I wasn't smiling enough and I was too much in it. And so I would sort of have these, it's almost, when I look back at it, it's almost like a, a schizophrenic face thing. You know, smile, cry, smile, cry, smile, cry. Um, and then with the... Um, um, it's then, well, how am I supposed to act in public? How am I supposed to, you know, and that no one know, would know. When I went into, I was removed from the, so obviously I went into the stupid room where they tell you what's going on, and I hate that room. Um, and what I also found fascinating, thinking back about it, is I was modifying my behaviour even then. I was so... I was so wracked with grief that my bones in my face ached and I said that to someone that I actually feels like they've moved because I was so it it felt like I, I can't explain the aching that the grief caused it was so bad um and then I thought my face was going to be permanently in a state of sorrow and that thought was horrible to me well it i thought i'd never be happy again and that they kind of felt like i that's how i should be i should not be happy again and then then i thought no but like, i imagine not smiling and i couldn't even rem i didn't even remember what smiling or happiness felt like it's like every memory of happiness and every memory of who i was before seemed like another lifetime it's like the moment, the moment that you get that news, that the life that was before is different. That the life that, that I had before was not mine anymore. It was, it was a dream and it didn't feel real. And I can still talk about it, things that I did, but there is a very clear difference between before and after. And what's incredible is the woman I am now the way that I think now the way that I behave now I wouldn't want that to go away even if I could have my daughter back I wouldn't want that to go away I have learnt so much about myself I have learnt so much about what I think and what I feel and um, how I how I how I am that I don't want to ever lose that and I don't want to go back to the girl before that didn't want to talk about death and didn't want to associate with the people that did. I didn't want to be one of those people again because now having had it touch me so close I I, I want to be I want to be that person. I want to be that. I want to know what that's like. I would give, you know, I would give anything to have my daughter back. I just don't want to go back to what I was before that. I don't want to go back to that person that, or that soul that, that um, didn't, didn't know. I felt so, I think about her now and think she was so young. She was so naive. Um... 
and now I just I, I feel more like a woman now and I think that's you know that's when I grew up and different people have different grief stories where they go through this growing up who they were before and who they were after and um yeah I don't want to ever lose that because I felt like she has given me more than I realized I had that through her um that you know through 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 Zenobia passing away she gave me something that I don't know that I could have ever got elsewhere it's just the price was too high you know that's too high a price and I think I, I remember saying that to someone that if this is the price of if this is the price of knowledge the price is too high and it's always too high and I don't want to pay it you know it it it, it, it seems so unfair that I would get so angry after that when I would see, you know, 80-year-olds and 90-year-olds or, you know, people that were 92 and, you know, people going, oh, no, they're almost dead. And go, she was three. Why does, why is it fair? That's so unfair that they get to live to that old and she only got to live till she was three. And then, of course, there's the what ifs, you know. What if, what if I make the change? What if I had taken her with me? when I went out that day what if I hadn't we hadn't moved on to the boat at all what if I had done anything differently you know I, I, I can think of I can think of so many things I could have done differently and that is the hardest thing the what ifs the what ifs I had of turned around straight away what if I had of they're the hardest things because you want to think that there was something I could have done and in my mind there is something I could have done but I also know part of me goes this is pointless you cannot turn back the clock and change anything I can't make the change I can't fix anything I can't turn back time and and I the thought that that if I could turn back time and change something and that didn't improve the situation, that didn't make it better, that would be horrid. Because then I have to live through it again. I, could, I couldn't do that again. I couldn't live through that twice. Um, and then, you know, you, you hear the stories of, like, someone sent me the story of the Australian couple that lost all their children in a plane crash. They weren't on the plane, but their children and their granddad was. And they had to come home to an empty home and I couldn't even fathom that. But then you have the people that say the stupidest thing. Well, you have other children. That's not the point. And also I was pregnant at the time. And my father-in-law, I was going to say God bless him, but oh, decided to, you know, I was pregnant. And then I had a girl. And his reply was, all the, well, all's well that ends well. And you just go, oh my goodness, this does not replace her. It was actually very hard having another girl afterwards because yeah it was just so hard there was such a gap and 
also that there was also the dealing with other people so this is where i also have my my issues i i was not willing to put up with other people's crap but i was willing to put up my with my husband's and i was always trying to appease him he didn't want a picture up we didn't put a picture up and i kept saying yeah i, I don't want one either i would love to look i looked at pictures of her sometimes our friend alex him she made the um she made the video at the wake and it has music with it and i can at one stage i walked into a room and the kids were playing that video and i heard the first thing of it and my brain my conscious brain didn't register what it was but my body felt it like i'd been kicked and i walked in the door and i i, I literally stumbled backwards because i went what 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 is that and it took me a minute of just not being conscious to go hang on a second and then it hit me what it was and I, I have to admit that amazed me a little bit to go the body responded before my my conscious mind caught up with what I was hearing it it felt it first and and it you know that stuff is 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 super cool not not I mean the the, the idea that the body can respond and I can just get back to the point. The point is being able to see that the there is the funny side of different things. The things that I did in the hospital. The laughing. Oh my goodness. I was walking in to see my daughter's body. And I couldn't I couldn't find any toilet paper. I couldn't find any tissues. Oh no, I'd run out of toilet paper in the toilet. I need when I first got to the hospital. I was busting for the toilet and that I'd taken, been taken in there by the police and the police, um, I, I, they escorted me to the toilet because, of course, this is still an investigation at the time. And the guy, the police officer went toilet in the male toilet and I went to the toilet, the female toilet, and I stuck my head out. There was no one there and he was standing there and I said, look, I've run out of toilet paper in the toilet. He runs back in the male toilet and gives me a wad of toilet paper, like just a, a handful. And I was like, okay, that's not, okay. And I, I laughed. And then after I'd been given the news, I was walking into the room to see her and I stopped and went, there's no tissues. And he pulls a wad of tissues out of his pocket. And I said, that's the second time you've done that today, Peter. And I laughed and I immediately thought, you can't laugh right now. But I laughed. I made a joke and it was funny. And it was funny at the maybe because of the time was so tense maybe it was because it was so hard that that was I, I made a joke and the, the, the poor guy had just been crying in the room that I was you know they, I, I thought that the police officers were meant to be um tough and there he was you know he was crying because I, I was it was so difficult um and I, I didn't even look at whether they got upset when I was watching her, but the, when I was talking to her. But it, it's amazing when I think of how she's affected my life afterwards. And she was in that room for sure. Her spirit was there. I could feel her. Oh, she was everywhere. She was really intense. But then when I saw her at the morgue, mortuary afterwards, like I think it was the next day or the two days later, because um, my husband hadn't seen her, um, or my ex hadn't seen her. They um, they 
uh, she wasn't there. And I, I could feel very clearly that she wasn't there and I needed to leave the room. I couldn't handle it. Um, and then the little things that, that I, I used to dream about her a lot. And I used to feel her a lot. I don't, I dreamt about her a little while ago. It started the year and it was the first dream I've had about her in probably about a year. But I feel like I'm slowly reconnecting with how she's shaping me and that she is shaping me as a person, as a soul. She is shaping me even now. And I think, I, I feel like she's aging where she is. Um, that, you know, when I saw her in the last dream, she was older, like she would be, she would be seven. Um, and that she is older and, um, I'd like to think that I can um, not make jokes about the situation, but make jokes about my response to it sometimes. Like the little things I said with the, the police officer and his water toilet paper or my ridiculous behaviour afterwards, sort of not knowing and um, sort of time stopped afterwards for a long time. Um, it, it should have like I got so annoyed that people would go about their day as normal like why didn't they just stop why didn't couldn't they tell that I was in uh, I just lost a daughter why, why didn't the world stop for a minute why did it keep spinning why did time keep going why did people keep doing their thing weren't they even thinking you know they could have put a little effort into it and I got annoyed that the world kept going and I felt like I was lagging behind for ages and I, I remember drawing like I was in a different phase. I, I felt like I was out of phase. And the, the world was going and I wasn't quite part of the world anymore. I was different. I was, oh, and I could see other people that were grieving were in this phase with me. Um, and everyone else was everyone else. But then I slowly felt like I'd reintegrated. But I'm always a little bit, every time something about her kind of hits me, I feel like I'm taking back out of phase again. Like I'm just out in that world that's a little bit different and all the grievers are there with me. And then we sort of integrate back into the world again and try and, you know, time becomes time and you start doing things. And I remember, um, I actually, I, I, the best quote I ever heard was from my friend Val. And I, I didn't know how I continued to live. Like, uh, how do you go on when, when this like, how is it possible? And she said that she believes that you have a piece of your heart for every child that you have. And when one dies, that piece is missing and it never is replaced. But it physically hurts. Like, it, people think it hurts, but it physically hurts. It physically hurts. Like, there is, there is serious pain there. And it's like the heart hurts. And I didn't know how I, it kept beating. Like, I didn't know how it did that. And, and... It just seemed to be impossible that I was still breathing and I was still beating, being in so much physical pain as well as mental pain. Um, and it just kept going. And then I, I someone else told me um, that the pain becomes normal. And I thought, this can't be normal. No one can live like this. And it, it really does. It becomes normal. And you're... That, part of you that's missing becomes part of your everyday life but it does affect 
the people around you you know my, my kids some of them still talk about it some of them don't some of them have pictures up of it some of them don't um and it affects them it affects them as kids it affects them as people you know they they it's not that they're unaffected by this they are sometimes they appear to not be because they are so they're just kids is they're so resilient they're so amazing they just keep they just keep going and maybe that's what people see in in me as well but I don't feel like that and maybe they don't feel like that either I don't know they just keep going and I don't know how they do it they just do it and it's they're, they're, yeah they're just so resilient and they talk about it and sometimes they get upset and sometimes they don't and and um and you know it's just the way that they do things and they laugh about the things that she did and the things that they did afterwards and the things that they found exciting and it's so good to see them laugh about it and to be able to tell jokes and to be able to make fun of the times that they were in and and that's really really important and I think I've become funnier afterwards I think that I laugh more afterwards now with them I'm a lot lighter than I was before because shit just doesn't matter it just doesn't you know it, it yeah yeah life is not it's serious as hell and sometimes uh, like I had one of those days today where I just something else was said and done and I just felt like I had been hit and it was so physically it's like I was physically like it had an anchor on me and I was pulling it all day it was physically difficult and so it's it's hard and it's heavy but it's it's not that some things just don't matter and some things matter a lot more than they did before like where I am in this situation now that matters you know I can't put up with the shit that I did before because now it matters it matters where it didn't matter before or I didn't I pushed it aside before where well, now I can't now it m more needs to be done and now I realize that I only have a certain amount of time left you know I'm not I never believed I was invincible but the death aspect seems so far away and now it doesn't now it seems a lot closer and now I feel like I've got to do things I've got to change my life my life can't just be this this can't be all that there is and I also don't know the timeline you know do I have a year do I have two years do I have 10 years do I have 15 years am I gonna to live till I'm 85 or 90 I have no idea because I have no idea I have to get things done now and sometimes on the days like today where I feel like I'm dragging an anchor it's a lot harder it's a lot harder to laugh it's a lot harder to find the funny side of things it's a lot harder to get things done that I need to do it's it's just harder but I know I have to do it I have to do it because she's given me a timeline she's shown me that I have already have one and I already knew I had one but now she's made it clear that this is the timeline and I do really feel that I will see her afterwards I really feel that I will meet her at some point and that's really important to me that's really important to me that i will see her again and so the fear of death 
has gone. I am not afraid of it. I am not ready because I've got kids and I've got things that I have to do and I want to be there for every little bit that they go through. I want to be there to be the support for them. I want to see them grow up and I want to see them, you know, graduate and I want to see them get their jobs and I want to see I want to see the cool stuff. I want to be there for them. Um, but I'm not afraid of dying anymore where I was before and I'm absolutely not. And what was really interesting is before, just before it, I started to be interested in death and I don't know why that is, but I started to be interested in death doulas and why that stuff was really interesting and I, I you know, how people managed it and I, you know, and then afterwards I'm like, oh, that's why, because they help people through this process. They help people manage the aftermath of it, which is shocking. Um, they help people make decisions and just get through, you know, you know you've got to get up and get dressed and do the dishes and you, the basic things. They help people do basics and that's what, that's great. So that's why they did that. And that's what I wanted this, this one to be about, just to talk about how in death there's also humour and in death there's also life, you know, and just to, just to, share a little bit of my grief and I know if I'm going softer I'm just because I'm looking around and stuff sorry <laughs> and, um yeah so that's it for today thank you for listening and we I will be back next week with more